This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, this year the EPA received a massive amount of money to improve the country's drinking water, invest in green energies, and fight pollution and climate change. The agency's deputy administrator joins us to explain where the money's going. And the Army is looking to the future. We're getting a glimpse of what that could look like as Army, defense, and industry leaders gear up for the annual Association of the United States Army Exposition. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. As nearly 150,000 residents in Jackson, Mississippi are without water, the Environmental Protection Agency is implementing one of the largest investments ever in the country's water infrastructure. Janet McCabe is the Deputy Administrator of the agency. Janet, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Mimi. Let's start with that water situation in Jackson, Mississippi. What's going on now? How is the EPA involved? Yeah, um, I'm really glad people want to know about this. So as you said, 150,000 people live in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, there have been water issues there for a long time, and EPA has been involved with the city and with the state working to improve the situation there. Um, when the recent um, uh, storms, the storm happened and the, and the flooding, and the water system was just overwhelmed, um, EPA was able to take people to the site right away. Um, we have experts in these issues working with the city, with the state, uh, to fix, to bring water pressure back up as soon as possible. Water quality is also an issue there, but you just think about it for a minute. This is a, a, a sizable city, people without water in their taps, in their toilets, in their washing machines. Um, this is a very, very serious situation. So we will continue to be there just as long as we need to be in order to bring safe drinking water back to the city of Jackson. And I understand the EPA is also investigating how we got into this situation to begin with. The Office of the Inspector General, which is a separate agency within EPA, has started to, to look into it. So let's talk about the bipartisan infrastructure law. Yeah. How significant is this level of funding for oh my, the agency? Oh my gosh, this is an absolute game changer um, for everybody who lives in this country. If you think about the times through our history where we have invested substantially in infrastructure, Think about building the canal system, thinking about building the railroad system, thinking about building the highway system. This is the kind of investment that this represents. In decades, there has not been this much invest investment. For EPA, and when I say for EPA, I mean for public health and for environmental protection across the country for millions and millions of Americans, this is an utter game changer when it comes to water um, quality, drinking water, safe drinking water, and disposal of wastewater, uh, cleanups of, of contaminated sites, a whole bunch of things. I'd be happy to go into whatever particular uh, app, uh, part of that you're interested in. I, I'm interested in water infrastructure because yeah. the, the bulk of the funding goes to that. Yes. Why, why, that, uh, why that sector specifically? Right. Well, first of all, our drinking water and wastewater systems are absolutely essential to public health and uh, the functioning of uh, uh, every place in this country, cities, suburbs, small towns, everywhere, right? We just, we can't manage without those things. Um, and it is expensive and it is old. So think about parts of the country where the drinking water system was built 100 years ago. 
right? Um, and uh, it is very hard to keep the investments going. It's expensive to do that. So EPA, even before the bipartisan infrastructure law, EPA was investing millions of dollars every year, sending it to cities, towns, sewer districts to uh, upgrade and repair and, and, and replace water systems. The bipartisan infrastructure law ups the ante on that, $50 billion to EPA to send out into the country. Um, this is massive, massive investment, and the need is tremendous all across the country. So this has been very exciting. I, I get that, that there is definitely a need. The infrastructure is very old. Will people actually see a difference? What what impact is this actually going to have on, on people's day to day? Well, one of the most dramatic differences it's going to make is we still have millions of, of water, drinking water lines in the country that use lead in the, in the pipes. And the older that gets, the more likely it is for lead to actually get into our drinking water. Now, you can't see lead in your drinking water, um, but you can see it when your children um, have elevated blood lead levels. This is one of the most um, well-known and well-studied childhood environmental risks. It can harm a child for life. And there's no reason in this country why any kid should have to drink water that has lead in it. So this money will move us toward President Biden's goal to have zero lead lines. Um, I would say that is one of the most dramatic and important impacts of this investment. Another $5 billion goes towards uh, cleaning up pollution. Right. What does that mean? Right. This is another super exciting part of the, of the law. So across the country, there are millions of sites that have been contaminated through prior pollution. So it could be something like your neighborhood gas station that isn't there anymore that had a leaking underground tank. It could be a dry cleaner. Those are some of the most common neighborhood. They're called brownfields. Um, but there are also just lots and lots of industrial sites that used chemicals where those chemicals are still in the ground. Um, then we also have the great big sites that are called Superfund sites, um, which if you think about Love Canal, um, that is uh, the epitome of a Superfund site. What the bipartisan, bipartisan infrastructure law did was to give EPA $5 billion to, um, to put out into those communities to clean up those sites. And the exciting thing is that we know where a lot of those sites are. They've been studied already. The plans to clean them up are ready to go. They just need the money. And now, so we can put it out very, very fast and get that work done in communities right away. And if, I love this program, if you can't tell. Um, it, the return on investment when you clean up a site like that is $20 for every $1 invested. It improves local property values by 5 to 15%. It creates local jobs. This program has created hundreds of thousands of jobs across the country working locally in the community and teaching people skills. It's just, it's win, win, win all around. There's also money set aside to upgrade school buses. Yes. Why? Oh, because 25 million kids ride a school bus to school every day, and most of those school buses are dirty diesels that are pumping diesel particulate emissions into the neighborhood out of tailpipes that are right at stroller height right in our neighborhoods. And we don't need to use that technology anymore. We can use clean electric school buses that are quiet, that don't smell bad, that don't make a huge noise, and will improve the quality of life and health for people in our school communities and our neighborhoods. And $5 billion for EPA to, again, send out into the country 
to school districts who want to invest in this clean technology. And just as an example of how much people are eager for this, um, we, we have about a billion dollars a year. We put out a first announcement for $500 million of it. So um, uh, the first uh, uh, tenth of it, if I've got my math right, $500 million. We got requests from every state in the union for f up to $4 billion worth of school buses. So wow. the, the need and the desire is there. And we're, we'll, we'll be putting out um, uh, the results of that in, in a couple of weeks here. It's really exciting. And then we'll do other grant opportunities as the, um, the years go on. All right, Janet, we're going to take a quick pause here and then come back. All right. We'll pause right here and continue our conversation on the other side of the break. Stay with us. We're back with Janet McCabe, Deputy Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Janet, let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. It is, again, a large investment in climate change. Is this a game changer for the EPA? And how will you, um, how will you spend that money and how do you prioritize? Yeah, um, it is a game changer, not just for the EPA, but for America. Um, and um, I'll just talk about the EPA-related parts of the bill, but of course there's many other things in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, uh, EPA gets about $40 billion, with a B, um, again, to put into specific programs. So um, your question about how do we prioritize, well, the, the, the bill itself, the law itself, really tells us what to do with that. Uh, uh, a lot of it goes into clean energy programs that EPA already administers or, or, or it's close to things that EPA administers. So uh, working with, um, with, uh, with communities, with state and local government, with companies to encourage and help support them moving to cleaner energy. So using energy that does not consume fossil fuels, which is what is contributing to climate change in such a, a, a major way. Um, the, the largest part of the funding, $27 billion, um, goes to um, what people are referring to as a, as a green bank or a greenhouse gas fund. Um, it's, a, it's a system so that money can be put out in, into, a, uh, into a fund that can, then can support, through loans or grants, lots of different clean energy projects, things that probably couldn't get funded otherwise. So think for a minute about community solar projects. You've got a, you've got a neighborhood, maybe it's a low-income neighborhood, but it, because, um, uh, of course, it, it's, it's low-income neighborhoods and disadvantaged communities that are impacted um, uh, more um, inequitably by pollution and by climate change. But it's hard to, for a, a community that's low income that may be rental housing, whatever, to invest in, in solar energy, which will bring energy costs down for that community and also help reduce the, um, the impacts of climate change. So the Green Fund will help churn money into the economy to do things like that. I, I want to uh, follow up on something that you alluded to just now, which is essentially environmental racism. And yes. I know that you're very passionate about that. Yes. First, define what that is. So um, over the years, as our society has developed and, and uh, the way we live in our world, which involves a lot of chemicals and the burning of fossil fuels, we know from study after study after study and data that EPA and others have collected that if you are a person of color, if you are a low-income person, if you live in a rural community, you are more likely to be exposed to environmental toxins than if you are not. Um, one in four 
black Americans, black and brown Americans, lives within three miles of a Superfund site. We were talking about Superfund sites before. These are some of the most polluted sites in, in our country. Um, if you are black or brown, you are more likely to live in a community that does not have as many trees. And so the air pollution is worse and the heat is worse. And heat is the number one cause of, of, of death from, from natural um, events, right? So these are very demonstrable health impacts that are inequitably shared. And I, I haven't even mentioned what we were talking about before, which is clean water and wastewater. Um, there are communities like the ones Administrator Regan has visited on his journey to justice, where people do not have sewer in their houses. The sewer sewage runs into this into the streets. I visited villages in Alaska where they do not have running water in their communities. This is not right. So what's EPA doing to, to address this? Well, ever since uh, uh, President Biden took office and Administrator Regan came in, environmental justice and equity has been um, at the forefront of everything that we think about at EPA. And we have many opportunities to make sure that we are identifying and focusing on these communities. Uh, Administrator Regan has highlighted some of them through his journey to justice tours in the South, in Puerto Rico, in, in, in many communities around the country. But as we think about um, where do the grants go? Um, where does the enforcement and the com compliance work happen? Um, we, can, we have some discretion to focus on those areas where people have been unfairly burdened uh, and that needs to be addressed. I want to pivot a little bit to a major criticism of the EPA, which is that you create so many regulations um, that it hurts businesses. Mm -hmm. So how do you protect people, protect the environment, but at the right. same time not hurt their livelihoods? Right. Well, the, 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 I, the notion that a clean economy, a, a clean environment and a vibrant economy are opposed to one another or inconsistent is just absolutely incorrect. I mentioned the, uh, the number a minute ago about how investing in cleaning up communities brings more than $20 of, of good, environmental good and economic good for every dollar invested. Uh, we know our economy has grown Right, has demonstrably has grown over the last 50 years, and pollution has come down. Um, the other point that I want to make and make sure that people understand is that, um, that Congress, our U.S. Congress, has put in place laws to protect Americans from air pollution, water pollution, um, and, and land pollution. And EPA implements those laws. That, that is our job. So we, we don't pass regulations because we choose to do so. We pass regulations because the Clean Air Act requires that we do or the Clean Water Act requires that we do. And we do because our elected officials have decided that we want to have a clean environment in this country. Janet, you're a lifelong uh, civil servant. And I wonder what makes you so passionate about this type of work specifically? Yeah, it's, um, I, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that. I, um, you know, when I started out my career, I'm trained as a lawyer. Um, I, didn't, I didn't plan to go into environmental protection. I, I wanted to be a legal aid lawyer and represent poor people in, in legal matters. And I ended up getting a job doing environmental protection in, um, in Massachusetts. And that led me to a career in, in two states, being a civil servant in two states on environmental issues um, with, with little forays into um, uh, nonprofit work and, and a little bit of time um, at uh, uh, Indiana University where I live. Um, to me, there is no higher calling than public service. 
And uh, being in the environmental field has shown me how pervasive environmental risk is in our country and how fundamental it is to people's quality of life. People want to, what they want is to be able to bring up their kids in a safe neighborhood and know that when they turn on the tap, they don't have to wonder if there's something in their water that's gonna make them sick. They, they, they don't wanna have to keep their kids home from little league practice because it's an ozone action day. That's what we all want, right, is to know that our kids are safe. And we, we expect government to help us do that. And so it has been just the honor of a lifetime of privilege for me to be able to work at all levels of government, help, pr helping protect my home state, and, and now at the federal government where we can affect millions of people at one time, um, it's just the greatest honor that I could ever imagine. Deputy Administrator, I appreciate you coming in. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the latest defense technology will be on display at the annual Association of the United States Army Exposition. We're getting a preview of what's planned for this year's event. We'll be right back. Starting October 10th, over 700 companies will be vying for attention from the military leaders at the Association of the United States Army Exposition. This year's event is expected to draw 30,000 people. Retired Brigadier General Jack Haley is the Vice President of Membership and Meetings for the Association. Jack, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot, Mimi. So this year's conference theme is Building the Army of 2030. That's Obviously, right. a lot goes into that. What would you say is the most important element? Well, you know, the Army focuses really along three lines of effort, readiness, modernization, and people. And so the, the efforts to build the Army of 2030 is along those three lines. But really in the modernization level is where you'll see a lot of uh, exhibitors at the annual meeting where they uh, are showing their latest technology. Uh, and, but you'll also see it in some of the contemporary military forums. Uh, you know, the subjects of those are along those and how the Army is going to get uh, to uh, the Army of 2030. So what's going to be new this year at AUSA? So we're really excited to bring a few new forums into the annual meeting. We've, we've been doing the annual meeting in Washington for over 60 years um, and at the Walter E. Washington Convention Center for uh, probably the last 10 or so. But this year we are bringing a new forum called the Solarium. And it's a, uh, a leadership development, a professional development forum for junior leaders that the Army hand selects, brings them in, and the Chief of Staff of the Army, the Secretary of the Army, give these young leaders uh, from the total Army, Reserve, National Guard, and Active, really tough, wicked problems. What, what is the senior leaders, you know, the senior leadership of the Army having a hard time with? And let these junior folks you know, wrestle with it over the three days. So this, we're really excited for the Solarium. That's under our banner of our new Center for Leadership that we just stood up at AUSA in October. We're also excited to bring a new pavilion to the floor called Cyberworld. Uh, so it's, it's a top-notch speakers and professionals across the cyber domain discussing topics uh, and cyber companies with small kiosks. Uh, so those are two uh, new things that, that we're doing. We're also, you know, taking some of our current, our events that we typically have and adding uh, some, some entertainment to. So the president's reception, where our CEO honors the secretary and the chief. Uh, we're bringing in a group called the Washington Tattoo uh, for musical performances at the president's reception. 
uh, you know, so it's 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 going to be uh, phenomenal, like it always is. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're in Washington around Columbus Day, you know, the 10th to the 12th, this is the place to be in Washington. What are you hoping attendees get out of the conference? So we want them to, I mean, know their army. Um, you know, AUSA is the is the Army's nonprofit professional educational association. We we provide you know support for soldiers and voice for the Army. And we want, uh, we want uh, the people who attend the, the meeting to understand our Army, to, to understand its challenges, to understand uh, what, it's, uh, what it's looking forward to, and how it's going to build the Army of 2030. You know, as you listen to the Army and the DOD leaders speaking at the conference and, and the displays that you're going to be seeing, what are you personally most looking forward to? Well, you know, I'm I'm the the chair of the meeting, so you know it's you're not allowed to pick I, favorites. I, I, it's it's <laughs> difficult to pick a favorite, um, you know. But the the we do have, I I mean, I particularly enjoy the opening ceremony. Um, you know, being a, a you know retired army, you know, 30 years, the pomp and circumstance of the opening ceremony, the support that we get from the military district of Washington and Third Infantry is absolutely phenomenal. And that's the opportunity for the secretary of the army to lay out uh, her vision. Uh, her priorities, uh, so it's it's an anticipated uh, event. And briefly, uh, besides putting on this annual uh, meeting and, and conference, what else does AUSA do? So AUSA actually, we, we, we do a lot um, in terms along those lines of educate, inform, and connect. Uh, AUSA in terms of educating the public about the Army, we publish uh, the Army magazine, uh, we, we connect with uh, our industry partners, uh, with industry and the Army and the, the American public, uh, and we inform. Uh, and, and we use meetings like the annual meeting here in Washington to accomplish all three of those. Well, I'm going to be there, and I'm looking Thanks. forward to it, too. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Mia. Stay with us. Government Matters will be right back. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.